I'm terrified of the doctor's office. Mostly, I'm terrified of getting shots. So much so, in fact, that when I got my last one last year, my mom had to hold my hand while it happened. But vaccines are so, so important. In my personal top five list of scientific advances, vaccines are number one. Just think about this. In the 20th century alone, smallpox killed 300 million people. In 1796, a medical student named Edward Jenner noticed that milkmaids who got cowpox had minor symptoms and never developed smallpox. So Jenner took a sample from a cowpox blister and scratched it onto a poor, unfortunate boy's skin. And a few weeks later, he scratched the boy's skin again with fluid from a smallpox blister. And the boy didn't get sick. Soon, doctors all over Europe started doing the same thing. And later, more sophisticated smallpox vaccines were created. The last natural case of smallpox occurred in 1977. And the absolute last cases occurred as a result of a laboratory accident in 1978. Since then, smallpox has been the only disease which infects humans to be eradicated, completely and permanently removed from existence. And in 1980, the World Health Organization recommended countries stop vaccinations and had all laboratory stocks of the virus worldwide destroyed or sent to one of two biosafety level 4 laboratories, the only two places in the world where the virus still exists. COVID-19, so far, is a different story. You're listening to Pandemic COVID-19. I'm Maxfield Rivers, senioritis sufferer and somehow still that person whose GPA increased since freshman year. Today we're going to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine, how it's made, why it's taking so long, and whether it'll even work. But first, an update. As of May 2nd, there are almost 3.3 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally and 230,000 deaths. In the US, there are almost 1.1 million cases and 64,000 deaths. But it should be noted that all of these numbers are underestimated due to limitations on testing. Now let's take a deep breath in and let it out. COVID-19 is taking its toll on everything. The economy, education, mental health, and when stay-at-home orders are lifted, we're not just going to go back to the way things were. You may still be told to wear a face covering when you go outside. Some schools may not reopen in the fall. And big events like concerts or football games are likely not going to happen until either everyone's been tested or everyone's been vaccinated. And at the moment, neither seem likely to happen anytime soon. To find out why a vaccine is so far in the future, I talked to Dr. Rachel Roper, Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at East Carolina University, and one of the people who analyzed SARS back in 2003 to create a vaccine. For the record, SARS-CoV-1 appeared in China in 2002, and by 2003 had infected over 8,000 people in 26 countries over eight months, killing 774 for a case fatality rate of about 11%. So far, SARS-CoV-2, or COVID-19, has infected at least 3.2 million people and killed over 225,000 for an estimated case fatality rate of anywhere from under 1% to over 10%. The reason it's so difficult to nail down an accurate CFR stems from a lack of information, 
we simply don't know how many people have been infected because the majority of cases are either asymptomatic or mild. So 3.2 million is an underestimate. And the death toll could also be underestimated. A lot of people who die from COVID-19 may not have been confirmed or even suspected to have the disease. And there are a lot of differences between SARS and COVID-19 that explain why COVID-19 is so much more widespread. First, containment measures were implemented much more quickly in the case of SARS. And second, data indicates that people with SARS are contagious only when they show symptoms. The hidden danger of COVID-19 is that you can feel perfectly healthy, but still be spreading the disease. But back to SARS. Was there ever a successful vaccine against it? Well, um, it depends on how you define that. <laughs> so we had um, a couple different versions of vaccines that we made. One of them was a whole killed or inactivated virus vaccine. And one of them that we used was a, a virally vectored recombinant viral vaccine with both the spike and nucleocapsid uh, proteins from the SARS virus in it. And both of those vaccines were able to induce antibody responses and were also able to stimulate T lymphocytes, which are very important for controlling viral infections. And um, so that we could generate the immune responses in both mice and ferrets. Ferrets are a good uh, respiratory model. But we didn't get as good protection as we had hoped, especially in the ferrets. There was a lot of internal hemorrhaging in the ferrets. So we, we got a vaccine that was able to induce an immune response. It did not give as good a protection as we would have hoped in the animal models. We did not go into humans at that time because the virus had disappeared from nature. I'm confused now. I've always thought that vaccines are pretty effective. If they generate an immune response, they work. So why isn't that true? We don't know. So, um, you know, there are some vaccines that work very well, like measles, mumps, rubella vaccines work very well. Uh, the chickenpox vaccine works very well. They generate a good, strong immune response, both antibodies and, and T lymphocytes. And um, those that I just mentioned are examples of, of live attenuated virus vaccines. And they get in your body and it actually causes a small infection which really turns on the immune system very strongly. The immune system says, oh, gosh, there's a virus here, and they get all excited, and so you get a very strong immune response. They also last for a few days in your body, so it, again, that also stimulates a strong immune response. Some of these other vaccine strategies that I've described, they don't, they don't really stimulate the immune, immune response very strongly, and they don't persist for very long in the body, so you get a weaker immune response. And we know, you know, your immune response can handle some pathogens very, pretty well, like the common cold, you know, people clear it, clear it, the immune response comes up and clears the infection. And then there's some viruses that can persist, and your immune response does not do a good job of handling them. Um, HIV, human immunodeficiency virus that causes AIDS, the immune system cannot control it. We are unable to clear that virus from the body at all. Um, and that's one reason it's, it's been so hard to get a vaccine against that. And then you can think about the herpes viruses, like herpes simplex 1 that causes cold sores. That stays in your body pretty much forever. Um, your body cannot clear it. You, you get to a point where you probably don't have lesions very often from it, but your body doesn't clear it. By the way, SARS and COVID-19 aren't the only human coronaviruses out there. Besides them, there's also MERS, which showed up in Saudi Arabia in 2012. 
but only infected 2,500 people, though it did kill 858 for a CFR around 35%. There are also four other human coronaviruses, which between them account for about 15% of cases of the common cold. So why aren't there vaccines for any of those? So SARS disappeared uh, on its own after about a year, so we never went further with making vaccines for it. MERS, um, there, there is a vaccine that works in camels, I know. Um, there's been a, it's been a relatively small number of people who have gotten MERS, um, and for a vaccine to be functional, you know, for a company to want to make it, they would want to sell it to a lot of people. So it's not a very good, you know, market for a vaccine. Um, and then for the, the there's a number of, so coronaviruses are a huge family of viruses. And as you just mentioned, several of them just cause normal colds in humans. They're, they're not important viruses to us really at all. Um, the thing, and we don't, so everything in medicine is, is pretty much about money. I mean, we could make a vaccine for everything in the world if we had enough money, but we don't. So we tend to focus on those that cause significant disease. So um, the cold viruses, we've never made vaccines against them because um, there are literally thousands of viruses that cause co the colds. So it just doesn't seem worth it to make a vaccine against every one of them. And then, of course, we didn't know for sure that this was going to break out again. So, but this is the third coronavirus that has jumped into humans from animals now in the last 17 years. So we know that there are these, you know, coronaviruses circulating in Asia in the natural wild animal populations there, and they can jump into humans. And this is, this is a third one. And this is an especially bad one because it's both highly transmissible and highly virulent, so it causes a lot of death, a lot of disease. In addition to being such a dangerous virus, COVID-19 is also really hard to make a vaccine for. This, this virus can grow very well not it grows well in all kinds of cells in the body. It can get into the heart, it can get into the kidney, it's respiratory, and it's also gastrointestinal, which is very unusual for a virus to do both of those. And it can infect your lungs and your guts um, uh, quite seriously. But, but what we know um, from the previous vaccine trials we did is that even though we had those two vaccines that I described to you, they really didn't protect very well. So it's not going to be, in my opinion, a simple case to make a vaccine for this. Um, I think we're going to have to uh, work a little harder at it. I think some of the first vaccine trials are really not going to give very good protection. It's just a tough virus. But scientists are working incredibly hard to produce a vaccine, and it's projected to come out in about 18 months minimum. The first human trials have already begun. So I want to know, how are vaccines made? Yeah, so, uh, you know, one thing pe people think about is, well, can't we just use computers and artificial intelligence and predict how to do it? And the answer to that is no, we can't, because we don't know enough yet, so we have to test. So we make, can, can make different vaccine preparations, and we can use information from the past um, and, and make a hypothesis about what will give us the best vaccine, and then we actually have to make them and try them out. And so first, um, you usually test them um, for safety 
safety in animals, and then you test for efficacy in animals. So you vaccinate them and then you challenge them with the virulent virus to see if it works. And then if that goes well, you would try safety in a small number of humans, and then you would increase the number of humans and start looking at safety and efficacy in humans, whether or not it can protect them. There are lots of different ways to make a vaccine. You can inject the DNA into a human, and then the human will make the proteins, and then there's an antibody to those proteins, antibody, immune response to those proteins. You can inject RNA, which will make the proteins, and the same thing. You can use recombinant virus vaccines. You can use whole-killed viral vaccines, which is what we use for um, the influenza vaccine that's injected into your arm. So there's lots of different ways to make vaccines. Also, it's worth noting how long vaccine development normally takes. 18 months seems like forever, but in the world of medical research, that's not long at all. The current record for the completion and release of a new vaccine is four years. So what's the average time scale for vaccines? Well, they used to take 10, 20 years, right? <laughs> because, but, well, you know, I mean, the smallpox vaccine, when smallpox was pandemic and killing you know hundreds of millions of people worldwide you know edward jenner found this uh, pox virus in cows and scratched it into a boy's arm and then that and then challenged him with the smallpox <laughs> so that took probably about a week to do that vaccine but it was dangerous and untested right so we take longer these days to test them um the chicken pox vaccine i think it took seven years to get approval because chicken pox doesn't kill that many children and that means any vaccine for it has to be super safe if you have a virus that will kill 100,000 children a year you're much more likely to use a vaccine that isn't as tested or as safe because you've got the again you have to weigh the benefit to the risk of the disease so really, we're doing well. We're on track. Already, there are 95 vaccines being explored for COVID-19. And there's lots of prior knowledge being poured into this process. There's a large body of research from both SARS and MERS that are helping to inform current development of a vaccine for COVID-19. Plus, SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2 are very, very similar, which opens up the possibility of repurposing a SARS vaccine for COVID-19, something being explored by the pharmaceutical company Sanofi, but as long as there's no vaccine, people are going to keep getting infected, which raises a really important question. Is it possible to get COVID-19 again if you've already recovered? So what I would say is if you get infected from this virus and your immune response is able to clear it, so you don't get sick or you get sick and you recover, that means you have a strong immune response against this virus. I do not believe you're going to catch it again. I might be wrong on this, but the thing I think that they're confusing it, you may still have some of the virus in your body making virus, and you could be shedding virus and spreading it to infect other people, even though you're not sick because your immune system didn't clear it 100%. Cleared it enough that you're not sick anymore. But if you had it once, I don't believe you're going to get sick from it again, unless your immune system crashes or something very strange happens. Now, we don't know about this yet, and there are scientists who, who do not agree with what I'm saying, but we'll just have to find out in the future about, about what really happens with it. There's also the possibility that cases of people reacquiring COVID-19 are due to false negatives, which some reports suggest could happen between 15 and 30 percent of the time. But this is a developing situation, and a lot of information is unknown at this point, so we may not learn the truth for many years to come.
Thank you for listening. I'll be back with more soon. Pandemic COVID-19 is a podcast hosted by me, Maxfield Rivers. I'm also the producer and researcher. I'd like to thank Dr. Rachel Roper for educating me on vaccines and COVID-19. I'd also like to thank you for listening and ask that you please leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. Finally, stay home if you can and stay safe.